1: Welcome to History of College Football Podcast. I am Jay Abramson, and I will take you down a gridiron memory lane. The national champions, the teams, the rivalries, the conferences, the Heisman winners, the rankings. Today, we are lucky to have a very special guest, Mr. Bill Carroll, Consensus Draft Services Director of HBCU Scouting National Gridiron Network Special Contributor. You can follow him on Twitter at 11Bravo138. That's at E-L-E-V-E-N. Bravo one three eight. It is an indeed an honor to have you on my podcast. First, tell me, Mr. Carroll, about your work at National or Consensus Draft Services, director of HBCU.
0: Sure. So, like so many of the favorite jobs uh, many of us have ever had, I created it for myself. Uh, <laughs> Steve, Martin, right? Steve Martin brought me on. And I was just writing general stuff. And I myself come from an HBCU background. I would even attempted to play HBCU football and have always had a strong interest in it. And I basically approached him and said, hey, how would you like to have more coverage of HBCUs? And Steve, as well as people's like, well, if you suggested it, then I'm assuming you're willing to do it. (laughs) Yes, the answer is yes. I'm not suggesting this so that I'd be like, nope, not this kid. No, I was ready to go. And this is back when Jerome Mathis was at Hampton. Um, I mean, they had, so so there was a bunch of good players that year. In fact, there was a year that I was at the combine that Hampton, Hampton University had more players than USC. Now it's kind of an anomaly. Wow. Yes. They had five players from Hampton and three from USC that year. So there's always been great talent at playing at HBCU footballs, going back literally to the, the 19 teens. I mean, to the very beginning, but for obvious reasons, we were, you know, an apartheid society. Uh, for a long time, whites had no idea. They just didn't, you know, unless you just had, you know, a black friend or something. But you, <laughs> but if you just did, even serious. I mean, serious football fans. Like there's a very famous story about what changed the entire culture, the entire everything of the Steelers. And Bill Nunn is was inducted finally in this uh, in the Centennial Class and the, uh, the NFL Hall of Fame. And he had written these scathing articles, just tearing. Uh, art rooney a new one and art rooney to his credit instead of saying you know forget this guy i don't know why he hates me or whatever he said he picked up the phone and said let's let's have lunch and he said you know why are you so mad at me and he said i'll tell you why you know you your team is terrible and there's all this talent (laughs) that you're just missing out on uh and so the steelers had a handful of black players but almost none of them had come directly they're always almost always pick them up off the sort of the scrap heap right Uh, guys who've been released guys who've been hurt guys who were just free agent or whatever for whatever reason and he said look he he sort of laid out for him this is a great a better player than you have this guy he went through like 12 guys that are better than someone that you have playing right around for you in the NFL and so Art Rooney sort of did the same thing that, that Steve did to me well I assume that if you have all these great suggestions would you like to come work for me and he said, give me a day to think about it. And the next day he said, sure. And he was a part-time employee for several years and he eventually became a, a full-time employee of the Pittsburgh Steelers and then went back to being a part-timer when he got a little older. But the Steelers don't become the Steelers without Bill Nunn, right? This, this newspaper man, right? I mean, if, if that meeting never happens, if either Art Rooney says, forget this guy, how dare he write these terrible things about me? Who is this guy? Or if, or if when called, you know to help, uh, he said, "Hey, that's not my job. I'm a newspaper man, but I just thought you should do something about it." None of the Steelers don't happen. The Steelers, as we know them, never come to exist because Tony Dungy doesn't get scouted because Bill Nunn was the guy that brought Bill. I mean, think of how different everything all is right. without a guy like Bill Nunn. Um, all the great players and then all the coaches, right, that exist or became great, at least in part, because of of Bill Nunn. So to get back to to my excitement about hbcu football as a whole first of all it's a survival mechanism right um young black men in the south in the 20s 30s 40s and 50s their lives were incredibly difficult for a long list of reasons jay and if you happen to be a great athlete you know, you weren't going to Auburn or LSU or Alabama, or, you know, you weren't going to Kentucky, you weren't going to any of those places. Like you weren't even thinking about it and they weren't thinking about you. So think of all the talent that we would never have known about obviously without the HBCUs. And then the HBCU is sort of another really important and do still an important function. They graduate black students at a much higher rate than predominantly white institutions. So the environment is one that helps people to succeed in a way they don't get the same help and the same sort of support and nurturing at other institutions. So uh, you asked me a few things about Skip McCain, and I love, I mean, the more, I wish I could find more on him, and we'll talk more about that later, but the more I research him, the more it's like, how is this man not, there should be a Skip McCain award. There should be, <laughs> right, there should be some Absolutely. sort of, there should be a, a, a game that's played every year named after him. I mean, he is, first of all, I mean, just the numbers, the numbers are like, flabbergastingly amazing. I mean, his teams would go years without losing, right? Right. The four undefeated in a, a seasons. He had a season um, where his team outscored their opposition 176 to 19, 176 to 19. Total he, right. Right. I mean, it tells you, and this is at a small school. This is a school that the enrollment was never above 1500 and usually around 1100 during the years he was there right? This is a small school with a teeny little budget. One of my favorite stories uh, comes from one of his assistant coaches who himself now is a hall of fame head coach, Earl Banks was an mm-hmm. assistant, sort of his, they didn't use the term defensive coordinator, but sort of the, I guess the version, you know, the term came into being later, but essentially the guy that ran the defense for him. So Earl Banks is tremendous coach said that they used to joke around and the players would call themselves the dirty 30, right? Because there were only 30 of them and they were dirty because they only had two showers. So um, after practice, there was a race because you only had two showers and the water, the hot water would, you know, I mean, I don't know if you have daughters, uh, Jay, but the hot water, you know, only so much hot water, right? This is a school, it's the middle of nowhere. It's in a very remote area and they didn't have a lot of facilities. So. They had very few uniforms. They had to, guys would you know, guys played two ways. Um, they would sort of group guys together based on who could wear what uniform. And it was, they only had a few, I mean, they literally had just enough uniforms, barely sometimes. There were sometimes if you tore up a uniform, you know, you had to borrow one from someone else. And some guy might not dress that week because they didn't have enough uniforms. That's what I'm talking about. Shoestring. They were wearing this whole thing on a shoestring. Um, at its lowest ebb, at one point their enrollment during the uh, war years they dropped down to like 400 or something so it was a small school and like i said at the you know at the height at least when he was there i think they got to around 1500 and it was a school that was a regional power right they became a power and i told you about where i grew up i grew up in the tidewater area so a lot of kids from virginia uh from pennsylvania occasionally from new york right but it was mostly maryland virginia pennsylvania and there was enough talent because Penn State wasn't, for the most part, I mean, they'd get the occasional black kid, but they weren't really recruiting black kids. Uh, Pitt, once again, the occasional black player, but they weren't really, really recruiting them. And, you know, Syracuse, occasionally, if you're talking about the 40s and 50s, but not very many. They, their first player was in 1937, a guy named Sadat Singh. And they didn't know he was black. that's a for another show but another fascinating story right because they didn't know he was black it's like oh you're sadat singh (laughs) his mother had remarried (laughs) so so he had this last name uh singh so they thought he was they thought he was an indian um and so it was only when he showed up they discovered that sadat singh was not he was very much a black man but um and and died unfortunately um the run-up to world war ii because he was training to be a pilot Whoa. He was going to be one of the one of the Tuskegee Airmen. But um, the, the landscape in that part of the country, right? So you had Virginia Union, uh, Virginia State. You had uh, a little bit to the south. You had Elizabeth City State University, which is in North Carolina, but near the Virginia border. And you had Morgan State in D.C. So Morgan State was well positioned. You had a, a large population center to feed Morgan State. So the emergence of this teeny little school in Princess Anne, Maryland, which even now is not exactly a bustling metropolis, Jay. If you ever visit Princess Anne, Maryland, you'll want to make sure you don't sneeze or blink uh, because you yeah. may miss your visit to Princess Anne, Maryland. But it is a small community even now. And even now, the population at its peak, and this is pre-COVID, last time I checked, mm. they, had, they got to about 4,400 and change, about 4,457 students, which is a high watermark for you know, now it's called Maryland Eastern Shore. So this is a school that even now is not very large. So we're talking about when he comes there from Texas A&I, which is now uh, known as, let me see, Tennessee, sorry. Tennessee A&I, uh, A&I was known, nowadays is known as Tennessee State. He'd been an assistant there and had done very well. It was a very, very prized assistant. And he gets this chance to be a head coach. And um, the coach, I mean, the coach, so the president himself had been the coach. So it was, a they had a culture there. They'd, be, they'd managed to win, even with their little, nothing budget right in the middle of nowhere and so when the the president you know comes calls him in he's said a lot about their tradition or whatever he hasn't talked about the physical facilities he's sort of you know left that yeah, to be yeah, yeah, yeah. left to be discovered when he gets there but he's sold the program pretty successfully to him he says and we're also gonna you know uh you teach math which is your love so he becomes an assistant professor of mathematics and so when he shows up He's like, oh, this is nice. Now, where's the rest of it? You know, one of those kind of things. It's like, oh no, no, this, this is it. You've seen it all. Okay. Um, and so he was a little bit taken aback, you know, because it, at at, tech, at Tennessee A and I, uh, now now Tennessee State, they had a little more, a little more going. But he took on the challenge, and they did a lot of fundraisers. You know, they'd have bake sales and you know raffles and everything. And he did. He demanded that his players not just be football players. Rather famously, Roger Brown uh, was a DJ and he on the radio station there, and he was known as the big Nyack um, because he, he lived in Nyack, New York for a while. But yes, um, he said that he was there to build men, right? Uh, it's great if you become a better football player, but I'm here to build men. He really got a lot of pride when in the guys that he coached, you know, not just being football players, but if they became a lawyer or a doctor or an architect, or, that was just as exciting to him, if not more so. Um, so I, like I said, I love Earl Banks. I'm just read this real quick Earl Banks quote, cause I love it so much. So Earl yes. Banks was later uh, when he was going into the uh, conference hall of fame, they were interviewing him about his days at Maryland state. And he had this quote, he, this is the quoting. I used to say those guys here at Princess Anne are camping out. <laughs> we had two showers, 30 30 players and very few uniforms, but I learned to love it. I made a whole lot of comments when I went there I didn't wanna go, but I stayed nine years and I cried when I left. Oh, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So I'll give you an idea.
1: I find your line of work incredibly fascinating and the insight you bring just absolutely marvelous. Um, Now for our audience, my podcast, as you know, is dedicated to discussing the history of college football. Yes. Back on episode 11, we discussed the top 10 reasons to love the storied football history of HBCU. Now today, Mr. Carroll and I are gonna discuss the coach of Maryland State, now called Maryland Eastern Shore Hawks, Vernon Skip McCain, 1948 to 1963. For a little bit of background, Coach McCain had 102 wins, 21 losses, five ties, and won 81.6% of his games. And for a little more background, in 16 seasons, Coach McCain never had a losing season, and his version of the Hawks had four undefeated seasons and eight one-loss seasons. Coach McCain's numbers suggest he is the most successful African American head coach in the history of college football. Yep. Coach Vernon "Skip" McCain is in the college football Hall of Fame. So let's start at the beginning, Mr. Carroll. Sure. What was the state of Maryland Eastern Shore football? What was the state of the program prior to Coach yes. McCain's arrival?
0: Sure. You might say it was the state of nature. Um, <laughs> they they I mean we look at you look at college pro- football pro- programs now, even at at some even smaller schools you have you see indoor facilities and weight rooms and recovery tubs and none of that they, they they their practice field was their playing field so they played in practice in exactly the same place uh they like i said i told you the, the, early they had two showers for their entire team too and you know the hot water was a luxury item so you wanted to get there first uh so no matter how tired you were from practice you hustled your your way off the field if you wanted to be smelling good um later that day uh so he he really came to a program that though they'd been reasonably successful i mean they were a good program before he got there don't i want to make it sound like he you know found nothing but they the facilities were negligible i think would be a kind way to put it and what he did was he improved two main things he revolutionized their offense so this is when some teams were still running single wing they had been running single wing prior to him getting there he installed the the t formation uh and he installed his particular twist on it and i this is once again one of my great frustrations i can't seem to find any examples of his actual playbook now i haven't given up because i'm just (laughs) stubborn like that but so if i find one jay i'll i'll beg you to bring me back and we'll break it down but um anytime good sir my understanding is that he was an innovator. He came up, once again, he had teams with very few players, uh, a lot of good, good players, but a small number of players. Almost every single one of his players, you know, 30 players, 25 players, played both ways because you kind of had to. And so he would m- sort of, once again, try to maximize their abilities and minimize their you know, lack of capabilities and scenarios. So a lot of motion, apparently a lot of sort of trickery. So as an example, I would look at, if you wanna look at somebody who has a similar mindset, the Kansas City Chiefs run a lot of very interesting plays in short yardage situations, right? Where they, you know, midline shovel option and stuff like that. My understanding is it's sort of like that, like a lot of misdirection, a lot of motion. Mm -hmm. So it is my, one of those sort of, you know, Holy Grail things. And I'm trying to someday discover an actual example, even not a whole one, even if I can find pieces of his playbook. That's one thing he did. The other thing was he did was he improved their their academics. He was himself a tremendous student. He'd been a uh, very good quarterback, even though he's only five foot five. He'd been an excellent quarterback when he was at Langston, uh, which is out in Oklahoma. It is It was at that point, the furthest West HBCU in the country oh. and at that point, uh, because there weren't any in, in the, on the West Coast at the time. So he uh, was out there at Langston, you know, sort of in the, once again, sort of the middle of nowhere, so he, he understood what that was like. But he'd been a terrific little player, but he always knew that he was going to be an academic, and his original plan was to be a math teacher. And, uh, like I said, there's literally only one reason. Uh, as much as he loved football, his, his, he really wanted to be a teacher, and his, the only reason he ended up coaching at all was the low pay. If, if he'd be able to make a decent living mm-hmm. as Jeff just a math teacher that's probably what he would have done uh but after sort of going around trying to get a halfway decent paying job once again he could only teach in black schools at the time uh and the, the money was much lower but he also got offers to coach football and he's like oh now you know sixty five hundred dollars sound like a lot to us <laughs> right <laughs> but in, in the 1940s, in, in that part of the country, that sounded like, that, I mean, you could buy a nice house for 4,000. Yeah. So that gives you an idea, uh-huh. you know, sort of what, what things were, how different things were. So that's, that's an okay amount of money. And he's like, yes, I will do that. And so after being a high school coach and a successful one, he then got an offer to go coach at, tech, at Tennessee A&I, which is now known as Tennessee State. And they were a very good program at the time. And he was a very good coach. And soon he became a top assistant there, which brought him to the attention of Maryland state, which was now in need of a coach. And they had been a good program, as I said, but they want, they took a, I mean, (laughs) I mean, like nobody wins like this, you know I mean? Like it's a short list of people, you know I mean? We're talking about like, almost like the Earl Blake, Urban Meyer, you know, Nick Saban, I mean, that's a handful of guys that win like this in the history of ever you know, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't care what level you're talking about. I don't care what area you're talking about. There's only a handful of coaches that did what he did. So he arrives, notices that, you know, hey, there's not a lot here, but he's, he starts recruiting and he does a great job of doing that. He can f- see talent, find talent and develop talent. If you can do that, even if you have a lot of things going against you, then he also expanded the teams they played. So he he sort of hit the road, you know, knocking on doors, saying, "Hey, do you want to play my football team?" And uh, most people never even heard of his programs. They're like, "Sure, whatever." And then they'd be like, "Nope, we're not playing those guys again." <laughs> um, he managed to line up uh, four games with Grambling and beat them all four times. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Grambling then declined to continue <laughs> playing them after that. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to that find Eddie yeah, Robinson, right? Yeah, exactly. You'd be hard-pressed to find another team that an Eddie Robinson coach Grambling team is 0-4 against. Look hard. (laughs) So, and this is when Grambling was very good. You know, he wasn't playing some weak sister at the time. Okay, so when he arrives there, uh, he has immediate success. And I think his second year there was their first undefeated season. So it didn't take him long to get things going. He installs his new offense. He uh, starts finding kids in Virginia and the backwaters of Maryland and parts of, you know, Southern Pennsylvania, occasionally New Jersey and New York. But mostly he's doing it in, you know, know, I'd say probably about a 500 mile radius of the campus, most likely, mostly, but mostly. Uh, But he was in luck, once again, because the white schools, you know, weren't really, recruiting those players, especially in, in, the, in the South and, you know, the Southern part of the mid-Atlantic states, you know, so Maryland got their first black player in 55. So that changed things a little bit, but, you know, and he was one, like they didn't bring in a flood, you know, they, they, they weren't bringing in 10 or 12. It's like, we'll have one and we, we could say we have one. So uh, he had a lot of good, a lot of good teams, but I would say if you wanted to pick one, one team, that 55 team, man. And he had good teams before that and good teams after that. But that 55 team was just shellacking people, Jay. I mean, I, I just can't get over. I keep going back to the number. They went 176 points scored and 19 points allowed in that season. I mean, 19 points allowed in a season, like 19 points allowed in a, in a game, <laughs> is pretty darn good, is, right? But 19 points allowed in a whole season. Um, Johnny That's Sample.
1: So you, you Johnny Sample.
0: You have Johnny Sample
1: since yeah. the early 1900s or late 1880s. I mean, he was incredible.
0: Right, and Johnny Sample um, was on that team who later went on to, to play in the NFL. In fact, the crazy, here's the craziest fun fact about Maryland State slash Maryland Detroit football. Tell me. The record for the players from one school in a single Super Bowl game is held by Maryland Eastern Shore or Maryland State. In Super Bowl three, there were one, two, three, four, five players from this tiny little school in one Super Bowl. It's, it, it is a testament, really, to what he built. It absolutely um, is. Um, he is, as you mentioned, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was, okay. you were so incredibly
1: eloquent. I was going to ask, that's a perfect lead-in. Yeah. How would you encapsulate Coach McGame's significance to HVU football? Okay, so here's what I would encapsulate his significance. And, and, and,
0: and then to college football in general, if I may pose two questions. Sure, I will I will answer both of them. So sadly, he's been sort of sidelined. Like, this bothers me, Jay. I'm going to be very honest with you. <laughs> um we know about him to a certain extent in the HBCU land, landscape, but they don't have him, in, in, in my mind, in the proper space. He's seen as beneath guys like Earl Banks, who, of course, was one of his own players and one of his own – I mean, no, not one of his own players, one of his own coaches, sorry. Um, he did also coach uh, – had coaches that were, had played for him previously, but Earl Banks was not one of them. But Earl Banks, who was one of his assistant coaches, and later went on to have a great run at Morgan State. Great coach, but I don't think I, I would have McCain ahead of him, not behind him um people have obviously i'm not gonna complain i mean eddie robinson was nobody coaches like that like eddie, he'll never no one will ever win like that Eddie Robinson a coach forever I mean, f- nobody ever win four and eight games again like that's that's, that's never right. happening again so so i have no problem with people you know sort of putting him way way up on the pedestal and jake gaither once again i mean he's in there with anybody so i don't have a big problem with that but to me mccain's right there right after those two uh as much as i love whoever else you want to bring up there's been some great, great coaches, but I just feel like, I mean, Mario Kasem's a great coach. There's a lot of great coaches in, but McCain. I think part of it, that, that the reason that people sort of forgotten about him is that the program died 40 years ago. I think that's part of it. Sure. That sure. unfortunately there's not those things to keep his name alive. That's like you have at Graham, like you have, you know, for Jake Gaither at FAM or, or other guys who have, you know, this visible legacy right you can still see the football team you can still see you know there's things to remind you here's the stadiums named after them things like that they don't have that so that's part of it and the other part of it of course is that you know he was he was a black man coaching in the 40s 50s and and early 60s and white america had towards the end of that era kind of sort of discovered you know uh eddie robinson and jake gaither right towards the end of that so by the time Amer- white America was becoming really aware there were great black football coaches at these great black schools. His career was ending. right? So I think that's two things. So the timing and, you know, race, obviously. And the other thing is like I said, the program, you know, unfortunately you're not going to turn on the TV and see Maryland Eastern Shore on television, playing football, at least. Uh, I really wish something more could be, or was being done to sort of remind everyone of just how amazing a coach he was. Yeah, talk about a coach that's
1: under the radar, or almost the definition of it, it would be Coach yes. McCain. Correct. So if we went back to, and, and I'm not going off topic, but if we went sure. back to 1984 yeah. in the Mississippi Valley State team, Coach Archie Cooley's run and shoot offense. The gunslinger. The gunslinger, Willie Satellite Totten, Jerry Rice, they put up 60.9 points per game, yep. record that still stands to this day.
0: Yeah, probably in always your estimation,
1: will. Your yeah. estimation—you are so eloquent. You make my job so easy. In your estimation, was this the greatest HBCU team of all time? If I had to put you on the spot, it
0: wasn't the greatest team, but it was okay. the greatest offense. With a lot of room to spare. Uh, thankfully, I got a chance to see them fairly often. So back in that day, uh, BE, yeah B E T used to have what's called an HBCU game of the week, and they would move it around. But when those guys started putting up those insane numbers, they started featuring more and more often uh, World, right, which the, was what Jerry Rice's nickname was. World and Satellite, right? Satellite and World. <laughs> so Satellite was Willie Totten and World was Jerry Rice because he can catch anything in the world. Right. right. And uh, so I used to get to see those guys. Fairly, and then eventually, Archie Cooley coached at my alma mater at uh, Knoxville State. But by that time, he would lost a little something off his fastball, unfortunately. But the the... That it should be pointed out that that offense, I mean, like you pointed out, people study it to this day and they should, um, yeah. because he did things that even, I mean, no offense to June Jones or Miles Davis or who mentioned mention any coach you want to, he knew what he had in Jerry Rice, first of all, <laughs> and <laughs> he knew, he knew teams, right. We you know that's just good coaching. And he knew teams were going to yeah. try to take Rice away. So what he did was he designed that quad box, Right. So he would have four receivers in a quad box on one side and Jerry Rice on the other. So yeah, double cover Jerry Rice if you want to, but now you've got, now you've got these four guys, and one of them is gonna be wide open. Mm-hmm. So there are games when Jerry Rice would be a, a virtual decoy for a while, and then eventually they get tired of getting cut up, and they would, it only took once, they would decide to single cover Jerry Rice. <laughs> and on that one play, usually went for like 40, 50 yards and a touchdown. Uh, Jerry Rice was just a dynamic, special player. And, you know, I'm so glad I lived in the right time in human history to get to see his his entire career from from college onward. Um, When I think about the greatest, greatest, greatest HBCU players, I mean, I got to see a little bit of Walter Payton. Unfortunately, Jackson State, as great as they were, were rarely on television in those days. I think I saw him exactly twice in his college career. And I got to see him in an all star game after his uh, regular. College career. By, by going to the game, you were at the game. Oh, I wish. Um, uh, I did get to see, I did get to see Doug Williams in person. They whoa. played, they played our school, they played in Officer State in a night game in a driving rainstorm. And so I didn't get to see the great passer that people talked about, but Doug Williams was a terrific runner too. He just ran the ball down our throats. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was they were a tough team. They were just physically bigger and stronger than than our team. But yes, I got to see him in person in college. Um, who else was just ludicrous and amazing Harry Carson at, at uh, sure, South Southern State sure. was problematic difficult challenge um, and Robert Brazil and Walter Payton were teammates at Jackson State so they had you know maybe one of the greatest uh, linebackers in the history of the game and then one of the great running, right. backs, running backs in the history of the game and then they had these cool cool nicknames right I mean you know, you would see these guys with names like, you know, Lord's Prayer, right, Eldridge Dickey, um, you know, and, and, you know, we talked Perfect. about sort of world, oh, just tremendous nicknames, right? I mean, you know, Jake the Snake Gaither and, and Gunslinger Cooley. I mean, there was, there was always this, to term people use nowadays as a swagger, but there was always this great sure. sort of forwardness with your personality that you didn't see in white football, quite frankly, at the time. Uh, Now, that changed eventually when they started getting more black athletes. And then by, you know, by the early to mid-1980s, you had Miami, which, you know, is not a predominantly black institution, but their football team by that point, I mean, in about a six-year span, right, I I saw their team in like 77, 78, and it was this very different team, Jay, and by 80 sure. and by, what what had happened was uh, Howard Schnellenberger, when he got hired, went to go see the admissions people, and some of the academic people said, look. I'm going to make a list of players <laughs> and I'm going to need to give me at least half of them, even if we'll figure out a way to make it work. But I know <laughs> that, you know, because these were guys that could never have made it in Miami before. It's like they were almost like Duke. I mean, in terms of the way they approached football okay. until Helen Stellenberger came there. I mean, they were a, a homecoming you know opponent for a lot of people <laughs> in, in the in the 60s and, I'm not even joking in the 60s and 70s and that changed i mean utterly changed because their program changed they they changed everything they changed how they recruited they changed how they how they prepared how they practiced everything so and of course that also drained talent from hbcu so florida a and at one point probably would have beaten miami you know <laughs> if you talk about, i'm not even joking look at a 1967 68 team at florida a and with kenny riley and that bunch there's no doubt in my mind that they would have if not i think they would have beaten miami and they would have given florida state a run for their money um, they probably would not have beaten florida florida's really good but yeah, they might well have beaten Florida State and Miami just because they had speed, team speed that was greatly superior. They their coaches were better. Sorry, but Jake Gaither was a better coach than any of the coaches in the state of Florida who are <laughs> the big white schools. They okay. So uh, here's a here's a fun fact: when Alabama dropped uh, triple option and went to the wing T, yeah. where. Did Bear Bryant go to learn to run wing T offense? He went to Jake Gaither's camp. He went to no, a coaching kidding. clinic. He went to a Jake K- Gaither coaching clinic. That's where Bear Bryant learned wing T. So influence, yeah. Well, these are tremendous coaches, and within the coaching community, white coaches knew these guys could coach. Um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. I mean, towards so towards the end of the run of um, back to to Vernon, Skip McCain. Mm-hmm. Um, his coaches were beginning to become prized commodities. Now some of them would go to to be great coaches at other HBCUs, but his uh, offensive line coach, a man named JC coffee was one of the first black assistant coaches in the NFL. He's hired by the Denver Broncos. Oh, wow. Okay. Did not know that. So they knew how good his staff was. He had it, you know, he had the staff. So that's another thing. asked how they win? Coaching, man. Coaching matters. I think, college football might be the sport where coaching matters more than any other team sport. So if you happy. have, yeah, if you have a great basketball team, and your coach is just okay. You're going to be still pretty good. If you have a great bunch of baseball players and the manager's just, eh, you're still going to be pretty good. Um, I think the difference in football, football is just, yeah. yeah, right. A bad coach can make a good team bad in a way that you can't really do it in the other sport. Coaching, is a bigger variant it 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 has a more determinant factor i believe in football than any other major team sport and i don't think it's even close completely agree you bring such incredible insight and perspective
1: if i asked you purely fun questions you got the time for them i always have time for fun uh fun question if i had to put you on the spot historically was the most stunning win in college football history in your estimation
0: so there's two, I'm gonna to have to give two. And, and one is, since you said historically, one is because yeah. of what it did, right? So when Alabama played USC in 71, mm. and Sam Bam Cunningham went nuts, <laughs> <laughs> and owned just a handful of carries. Like people's, people's memories have sort of changed, but he only had a handful of carries, but they couldn't stop him. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> Luckily, he only had a handful of carries. If they kept giving the football, they would have, you know, he would have been even uglier but <laughs> it suddenly right the it, some of alabama's fans became open now they once again he started trying to recruit black players a little bit quietly even before that but he knew on some level that he, this Ball would he, right? yeah he, oh, pa- okay. Ball bear bryant knew on some level that this would be the thing that would open their eyes and so I'm going to say that's one of them, even though in terms of like, it wasn't an upset really. I mean, USC was really, really good. And Alabama was good too, but once again, speed, right? They, the, the team's speed was revealed to be radically different. And I, I am going to talk a little bit about that, that great Oklahoma Boise State Fiesta Bowl game. And oh. I, I have to mention that game, right? So Boise State, once again, was a really good program, but people sort of, you know, they, the smurf turf and you know their yeah, cute yeah, little yeah. story and you know wacky plays and whatever right and they just hadn't realized that they were also a really good football team with really good players at a bunch of different positions and the coaching staff was willing to coach fearlessly right fearless absolutely right playing with the house's money as the old saying goes so i think that's one that i i, I have to mention just because Unfortunately, this is one of my great things that sort of bothers me. The way that we now compartmentalize college football. Well, you're this kind of program and you play these teams and you're this kind of program and you play these teams. I really wish some of these teams that think you know, that they're all that would play more different kinds of teams. Now, would you get some blowouts out of it? Of course, sure. But you'd also get more of those upsets, I think, than people might realize. I mean, Michigan, uh, Appalachian State is like right there with it, right? That's the other one that was sort of fighting for space in my mind. Uh, and, And I was watching that game too. And I mean, part of it is that Michigan clearly took them lightly. I mean, there's no way of getting around that. But also Appalachian State played a great game. They played a great, great game. Their defense particularly, their defense particularly, you could tell that they'd really study what Michigan liked to do. They took advantage of every single one of Michigan's little lapses, little mistakes in every phase, offense, defense and special teams and special teams, which people don't talk about enough, which really, I mean, that's what won them the game. Right. A block punt. At the end, um, yeah. So special teams. And that was mainly what I did in my little, very brief and uninteresting college <laughs> football career. Uh, lane three, L3 on uh, on kickoff coverage. Uh, but <laughs> yes, left left three. Yes. Third, third from the kicker going left. Uh, that was it. That was, I, I, I realized very quickly that, man, college football is hard. These guys are good. These, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I got literally, I mean, if ever you want to have a humbling experience, Jay, uh, <laughs> decide that you're going to try out for something like that. You break off into groups and you start running and they're just timing you, you know, just trying to figure out what you are. And I thought it was a corner, maybe start running with the corners. A kid named Pat Creasy ran a four, three. And my friend Andre Ray ran like a four, three, nine. I'm not a corner. So I made my way away from that. I wasn't going to run around those guys. I'm not going to run after I've seen that with them. So I said, well, where are the safeties? And that's where I sort of settled, settled in. But I was like fifth at, at the best on the depth chart. But the, the, the game the way it is now, right? There's so much protection of certain programs, right? Because they're so important, right? We have to have these teams make it through to play these teams. And we can't afford to have them. Well, very true. Right? Because they're a brand, right? They're a brand. This is a brand. Clemson's a brand. Alabama's a brand. Ohio State's a brand. Oklahoma's a brand, as much as they are a football program, where there's you know seven-figure deals for these things and shoes and all this other stuff. Football has changed so much because, like I said, I was talking about when Skip McCain shows up, he's like, Well, where is everything? It's like you're looking at it, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> all right. I mean, he he was washing uniforms after practice. The uh, different times, the, right? Right. The athletic director, because he was that too. The athletic director, basketball coach, football coach, and you know, because he had some spare time apparently, a, an assistant professor in mathematics, um, is there washing uniforms after practice? Because <laughs> because he didn't have a large enough. I mean, they would share it. I'm sure he didn't do it all by himself, but he he wasn't above it. Yeah, he, and he wasn't above anything like he was a very he was a man with a very uh what was he like as a person Talk to me about I'm it. glad you asked. I'm glad you asked so um never drank never 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 used profanity apparently he gambled a tad but but when he was younger right just apparently just to um uh so he could pay for his own expenses he was he was a came from a family that didn't have a lot of a lot of money uh so when he was younger apparently he gambled but only only because he needed money but uh but other than that, you know, stayed away from all the major vices, uh, was an extremely moral person and loved, I mean, always hear coach say they love their players. Mm. But he, in his case, he would go, you know, before lights out and, right, check on them. right? I mean, oh, how are you doing? How's your mom? How's such and such? You know, he if a guy needed money, he would help him try to find a job. This is back when that was okay to do. Plus these kids, if they, you know, it was very, these kids weren't getting, you know, whatever. There was no boosters handing them whatever at this yeah. school at that time. They first, one, no boosters. So that takes care of that problem. <laughs> two, right? It's a very small program, middle of nowhere. Uh, but he would just check on his guys. And if they were struggling, I mean, once again, struggling in school, well, what, what can I do to help? Oh, you're having problems with math? well let's get out your book right i mean that's what he does he's a he loved math that was that's what he had studied when he was a student that was what he taught so he took an intense personal interest in his players uh knew them like he knew them intensely he knew what was going on if they had problems at home he knew all that good stuff and he really also intensely invested in his coaches so that's one reason that Earl banks you know who has this great opportunity waiting for at Morgan State? Cried at the thought of leaving after nine years in the wilderness, basically as he described it. You know, I mean, once again, I keep going back to this. They had two showers, <laughs> not not two shower complexes, two, <laughs> two showers, two shower heads for the entire team, <laughs> and only so much hot water to go around. So it was a place that they did it without. They did without and did it without. The things they did happen because of the talent of the players. You know, guys like Charlie, you know, Charlie Stukes, guys like, you know, Roger Brown, and of course eventually, you know, an actual Hall of Famer. And I think, frankly, I think Roger Brown should be in the Hall of Fame. But you know, the story of how they got Art Shell is fascinating. So this is a couple of years after the end of the McCain era, but okay. the coach that's there now is one of his former assistant coaches. And he is a determined individual um uh, so uh he had been rebuffed I think would be the best way I could put it in his initial attempts to recruit and uh Art Shell was essentially hiding from him right so he told his brothers and everything you know if he comes I'm gonna duck out and don't tell him where I am and so uh, this is a cool story so I'm gonna just tell it real quick he was he had yeah. actually wanted to go to Ohio State that was Art Shell's dream school and he'd also met with Grant with uh, Eddie Robinson at Grambling. So he's being recruited by the number one black college and one of the top, or he wanted one of the top uh, white colleges. So Roosevelt Gilliam, Sandy Gilliam, right, who had been an assistant, uh, as I mentioned before, and McCain had a terrific assistant, and now become head coach. And he is trying to sort of surprise Archell and his hope. And so Archell had taken off um and he had johnny sample already right so he's 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 put guys in the nfl already and he's sends johnny sample at one point to kind of talk to him and shell had said you know wow that's so nice i you know appreciate it but i have my heart set someplace else and so finally gilliam shows up and uh you know overwhelms or whatever uh, Archell's brothers, who tell him exactly where Archell is, why he's hiding from. It. Oh yeah, so so he goes and finds him, and Gilliam tells him straight up, "I'm not leaving until you agree, you know, to, to play for me." Huh. And he's not joking; like he's going to stay. He's staying for dinner. He's staying until breakfast. He's staying, you know, right. right? Um, and eventually, the father walks in. Archell's father and Archell's father had something like a sixth grade education or something. So education was everything to him, mm-hmm. and he made that. Like he said. I don't want to hear anything about football. He can play football for anybody. Tell me about education. Tell me about that you're going, can you promise me that my son will get his degree? He said, you know, like, what, what do you want me to promise? What do you want me to swear on? He will get every single, and that's the other thing. He graduated his, I mean, McCain and his, and then Sam, Gilliam after that, they graduated players. These guys weren't leaving without their, without the diploma. they, I'm assuming it was probably around 100%. I I look at it, but I'm sure it was very high, what the graduation percentage was. And, you know, Archelle, I mean, it sounds crazy when you hear about it, but Archelle wasn't thinking about being a professional football player. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, first of all, once again, players from black colleges, pretty small black colleges were rarely drafted. Uh, when black players were drafted they usually had come from big 10 schools or pack well, was pack 8 in those days but later pack 10 later back 12 but pack 8 schools or you know things like that you the, there was only you know tank younger was the first right uh to come from a, a historically black college or university but ucla you know the trio right from ucla uh kenny washington and woody strode and uh you know those guys and and, and uh deacon Teller, whatever those guys when they there was interest and of course uh in bringing black players in and and paul brown if we want to give him we should give him some credit he had integrated his team when he was not not that's much at ohio state um though there were some black players but he really uh began to really appreciate black talent and use black talent when he was in the navy so what did paul brown do in the navy i'm glad you asked he coached football (laughs) and perhaps maybe the best football team in the country at one point was his training depot uh, team at, um, at Great Lakes. He had Otto Graham. I mean, it was this ludicrously good team. A bunch of his old Ohio State players were on that team. Uh, Marion Motley. I mean, it's this loaded team. Um, like, they would have beaten, not only like college teams, they could have beaten some professional teams. This team was ridiculously good, right? Ridiculously good. And so he remembered that. He, and he, when he started the Browns, a bunch of those guys were players he brought in from his old, you know, uh, service team, you know, because during the war, the draft was still on. Unlike now, when we don't really, you know, I guess there's only been really one uh, football player, professional football player who died in Vietnam, who's drafted and died. But for the most part, there's a separation, unless you go to a service academy, uh, between military service and, and playing in the NFL. You don't see that many guys. Occasionally, you'll see a guy like Chad Henney from the Air Force Academy and things like that. But Back in the days of the draft, loads of players would play for service teams. And very often it was the first time that they were black that they played in in an integrated environment. Uh, Because in 1949, Harry Truman had, uh, with Executive Order uh, 1098, had had integrated the, the armed forces. And so that meant that armed forces teams slowly but surely, you know, if they hadn't already and something was like that Paul Brown jumped the gun. He integrated his service team in like 1944 or something. he need a wait around for Harry Truman. He's like, who's that guy? I want him, you know? <laughs> Harry Truman can work this out later. I need this guy on my team. <laughs> um, but yeah, his, his focus was getting a degree. That was Archel's focus. Like, I want to make sure I get my degree. And sure enough, uh, he did. He got, he got right away on time with his degree. And almost all of those young men did. Uh, that's the other thing about that great thing about that program that they ran at Maryland State slash Maryland to Shore is almost without exception, no matter how good a football player you were, you got your degree. It was a program that had a very strong family. We, once again, people say football is family, but this really did have a strong family environment. Very often, uh, brothers would come. Uh, you know, guys would send their cousins. Oh, you know, I have a cousin who plays. Oh, really? You know, so you would get. You get this very strong family vibe. A lot of these guys knew each other or recruited each other, right? Uh, hey, you know, I played against this kid in high school; it was really good. Oh yeah, can you talk to him? So you <laughs> got this. I mean, that's how it works. So, I mean, it's not like they had a private jet, jet Jay. You know, they weren't flying around all over the <laughs> place. They they didn't. This once again, as I mentioned before, this this was not a place with a super budget. Like they, their football budget was probably you probably have. Spent more on granola in your life than they had to spend on football at their school in these days so they had to find other ways to get it done hey who was good you know that you played against who was whatever so that was a lot of how they got guys word of mouth referrals you know some guy that they had now they'd ask hey who was the toughest guy you ever played against oh man there was this guy lb jackson who almost killed me oh really what was his name you know so right that's how they did it that's how they did it because they couldn't fly around or even uh, flying around was even an option. They couldn't even drive around that much. I mean, because their school was rather remote, a lot of their recruitment was by, you know, you know, you have to explain what, you know, letter correspondence is to people of a certain age, I guess, but, um, they wrote letters, they would, you know, make phone calls and yes, they really loved you. Like they did with Art Shell, they'd make a home visit. It's like for Art Shell, you, you do make the drive, right? <laughs> I mean, Art Shell was, by the time he got done, it was up to 285 pounds. It was still one of the fastest players on the team. They had a real special gift for finding huge people who were ridiculously fast. So a quick Roger Brown story. Sure, sure, sure. So Roger, Roger Brown, the first great 300-pound football player in the NFL's history, was on the track team. And people will usually assume when I tell them that, uh, in college that he was a track athlete. They think he, I mean, shot put or he threw the hammer or discus. No, no, he sprinted. He was a hundred meter sprinter and could run the hundred meters in 10 flat. When he got to the Lions camp, he ran a 50 yard dash in 5.4 seconds. Incredible. This is a person who, you know, started his career about 298-ish and finished his career, you know, probably around 320 something, but never really lost that speed. He was always a very fast big man. And you know Art Shell was sort of in that same vein. He was, you know, I mean, once again Raiders, right? That's when our, Al Davis was like, "Give me the fastest football players in the world, and I will, I'll, I'll make it work." He loved it. the fact that, yeah, I mean, Upshaw and Shell were these two ludicrously fast big men, and Shell, for his size, had unworldly speed, and you know, would get out on uh pull out on things that he would you know he was so fast he could block one guy and then get back in front of the running back and block another guy because he, he was that fast astonishing player so if i had to follow that
1: up and ask yeah. you in, in your estimation who is the best player you've ever watched and, and at the same time your favorite they, they don't need to coincide here they, they will they will not
0: coincide so okay. um, <laughs> my the best i've ever seen in person in my, my own two eyes and it's a close one. And one guy ended up not even playing college football. It was Alan Iverson was an amazing high school football player. Um, was the best football player and the best basketball player in the state of Virginia at the same time. Gatorade player of the year in, in two different sports. A handful of guys have done that, but it's not, wow. a, not a long list. Not a long, not, a list. Not, a, not a long list of guys who can say that they were the best player in the state in two sports. So, But he, didn't, he was originally planning to go to either Maryland or North Carolina, where he could have possibly played both sports, but then there was the incident at the bowling alley and those two schools backed away and uh, Georgetown which didn't have a at that time didn't have a football program stayed interested and he ended up going there but the the one that I usually give as my answer is Lawrence Taylor because I got to see him all the way up right I got to see him in person in high school at Lafayette High where oh, wow. cousins Torre and Tomas hello cousin Tore and Tor- Tomas <laughs> <laughs> played with him in high school at Lafayette And then I got to see him at Carolina, where we're number ninety eight was just terrorizing people in ACC. And then, of course, number fifty six with the Giants. Uh, It's hard to describe how he changed football, but whole things. First of all, every single team he played from about the age of fifteen on started their offensive meetings with how do we deal with Lawrence Taylor, right? He was—he always got the most attention from the other team's offense from the time he was probably in 10th or 11th grade until he stopped playing football. Uh, so that's about a 20-year span, right? Where he was the focus of every offense he ever faced. It was like, man, what do to do about him? I mean, Joe Gibbs freely admits that he came up with that 2 tight end offense specifically, the H-back, Right, he sort of right. brought it, was specifically to give him another blocker to deal with Lawrence Taylor. That was the, he doesn't even pretend to was, was no reason. No reason. So <laughs> really. oh, man. I changed what I did on offense entirely because of this one man, right? So um, I'm very lucky, right? Growing up in the Tidewater area in the, in the 70s and 80s and, and visiting my family even once I grew up into the 90s, I got to see a lot of terrific players, but Lawrence Taylor is super special. I mean, Bruce Smith was amazing too. Uh, but Lawrence Taylor was just different. Uh, I mean, Bruce Smith was also this. All oh, right. I mean, yeah. Bruce Smith was also, I mean, I can't, it's hard. To, he was actually kind of a chubby kid, but still ridiculously athletic. He was also a basketball player. I mean, I saw him dunk at 305 pounds effortlessly, not effortlessly, but with yeah. way less effort than a 305 pound man you needed exert. Now in his NFL career, they eventually he saw that speed was more important and he, he got into much better shape. I used to see him, at Waring's Gymnasium in my hometown. He was doing these boxing workouts. He was one of the first football players to really get into boxing workouts. And he dropped a lot of weight by his third or fourth year in the league. He was down to 272 Mm. and, you know, he entered the league at 298. So it gives you an idea of, you know, and got heavier, right? His rookie season, he got out of shape, frankly. And his pride, right? He didn't want to be thought of as a bust or whatever. And so his pride got to him and he just changed his body. But yeah, he looks, he still looks great. I've seen him fairly recently and he looks, I I wouldn't want to fight Bruce Smith now, Um, (laughs) but yeah, those, those guys. And I saw Michael Vick who was, I saw him in high school, right. Over at Minchville. Okay. Quick fun fact. I I keep, but his, his college coach was a man named Tommy Riemann who was a pretty good player himself played in the old world football league in the early 1970s and has this fun, well not fun story I guess, but a story about the still not getting, like people racing to get their last paycheck uh, because they heard that the, the league was gonna fold. But um, his his he became a coach obviously after, not long after the world league fell, fall, fell apart. But my fun fact is that he was also one, I think he called himself an actor, but he did, uh, we, he was in one of the better football movies I've ever seen. He was in a movie called North Dallas 40. He played the running back, Delmar Hobbs. So if you ever watched North Dallas oh, 40, yes, yes, of course, sure. J.G. Spradlin, right, is playing the coach, is on him, riding him about his hamstring, you know, to toughen up, you know, we need yeah. you to play. And he goes out and utterly, completely tears his hamstring. But that was coach Tommy Riemann, who coached Aaron Brooks, who coached Michael and uh, Marcus Vick who coached uh, Tyrod Taylor. He, co- he coached a long list of great players in his days at Minchville High School. But yes, that was that same man, Tommy Riemann. Oh, that's great, that's great.
1: Mr. Carroll, you've been a phenomenal guest. <laughs> Thank you. What a lovely you. audience to take away. I was gonna to try to put this in a capsule. is one, you sir are very eloquent. And two, Coach McCain was an absolute legend. And it sounds like from what I'm hearing, a phenomenal coach and an even more phenomenal man. Well, thank yeah. you, Mr. Carroll. Again, Mr. Bill Carroll, Consensus Draft Services Director of HBCU Scouting National Gridiron Network Special Contributor.
0: And, and let follow? me just mention, um, yeah. I also have the great, I also have the great Please. pleasure of being. Uh, I also write for Nuts and Bolts Sports. Uh, oh, Joe Cardozo's yeah. uh, organization is doing amazing work, and I'm, I'm very excited. And I, I host a show with uh, called Draft Central. Draft with, Central. Uh, my friend Jeff Barnes. But I want to say also to you, Jay. First of all. Uh, your i've been following since you know especially since we've been talking some of the work that you do with your your site and your uh your your twitter feed is full of nuggets is the term i would use i love great it coming from you thank you i love it i am I'm a, as you probably have guessed i am a junkie for football history i mm-hmm. if if someone would say all you have to do all day is talk about the history of football I would, that would be it. Like, I would need nothing else, right? I would, I, Absolutely. like, I would need nothing. I, I, as much as I love everything else, but that, I could literally let almost every, I mean, you know, like, I love my family, but other than that, I think I could let everything else go and just talk football, the history, particularly of the football, football all day long. So, I would be more than willing. And, you know, when February rolls back around or whenever it is you, you want it to, to catch back up, I, I have many more cool stories that are sort of I've unearthed. Uh, at some point, I'd like to do like a top 10 quarterbacks for you in the history of HBCU football, Love which it. has been, oh yeah. Uh, and so many of them are guys that once again, almost no one's heard of. So I'm glad like Hinton Hooker is the son. Um, he's, I think he's transferred now to Tennessee, but he was at Virginia Tech. I got to watch his dad, uh, Alan Hooker, who was a terrific quarterback at, at North Carolina a and sorry, Central, sorry. No, woo, sorry, that will upset somebody, <laughs> NC Central. But um, the the, the there've been so many great quarterbacks and so many of them no one has heard of because once again, it was before these schools were ever on television and the white press didn't cover them. So unless you were reading black newspapers, you didn't know what some of these guys were doing at Virginia Union or at Langston or at Lincoln or, you know, at uh, Bowie State or whatever. Because, like I said, the white newspapers, I wouldn't say, probably, probably around the early 70s, white newspapers started covering uh, HBCUs along yeah, with their other yeah. sports coverage. But for a long time, they just didn't cover it. was like they didn't exist. That's very true. Very true. I will
1: absolutely take you up on that. Consider it an episode. We will get together on a top ten Quarterbacks HBCU love it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, follow this man, Mr. Bill Carroll, and he's at Twitter at eleven Bravo one three eight E L E V E N B R A V O one three eight. Thank you for listening. Thank you, You Jay. Thank you. I am Jay Abramson. Join us every Tuesday and Saturday for a new episode.